what Jesus did at the cross made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. He paid the price of the sins of everyone who would ever believe so that we could be reconciled to God, our Creator, so that God could accept us and forgive us in Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part eight of Not Even One. Last time, we continued to look at some of the outcomes of the sinful inner heart of man, specifically our propensity towards violent anger, apart from the transformative work of God described by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But deep-seated anger results not only in violent actions, it's also the root of quiet, whispered gossip and slander. And as you'll discover today, this deep-rooted sin ultimately results in broken relationships and conflict with God and with others. And there's only one way to make peace before it's too late. Let's join Tom Pennington now as we discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Historians Will and Ariel Durant in their book, The Lessons of History, write this, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. Think about that for a moment. In 3,500 years of recorded history, as historians look back, they only find 268 years when there wasn't a war raging. And that's based solely on what we know. Historians estimate, now think about this with me, historians estimate that since the time of Christ, 2,000 years, there have been almost 15,000 wars. As they've tried to reproduce how many casualties have come from all of the wars of human history, all the ones that are recorded for us, historians estimate that it was likely a billion plus, a billion people have been killed in the context of war. Close to 150 million people died in just the wars of the 20th century. Right now, as you sit here this morning, there are 15 wars raging on this planet in which more than 1,000 people every year are dying. And if you lower that threshold, if you take into account those wars where fewer than 1,000 people die every year, there are 35 wars raging right now on this planet. We can also see man's propensity to violent anger in murder. The murder, the taking of another life interpersonally. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, in the year 2012, which is the latest, the most recent year available, just here in the U.S., there were almost 15,000 murders in a single year. And, and the tragic part about that, you read about this in the newspaper, often it's for nothing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, in addition to war and to murder, there are also, of course, physical acts of violence. Again, the FBI report states that in 2012, here in the U.S., there were nearly 8 
million people who were the victims of violent crimes. And that's only the ones that were reported. Five million cases of assault, one million cases of aggravated assault, and two million cases of domestic violence. We are also guilty, however, of being swift to shed blood if we do none of those things, but we simply harbor hatred in the heart. Listen to the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone, no exceptions, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And he goes on to say, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Listen, if you have ever hated someone, if you have ever harbored anger and bitterness and resentment and hatred toward another person so that you wanted to see them hurt, you're a murderer. That's what John says. Your feet were swift to shed blood. But perhaps you've never begun a war. I hope not. Perhaps you've never committed murder. Perhaps you've never been physically violent towards someone else. Maybe you've even tried never to allow hatred to sort of fester in your heart because you understood how destructive that would be to your own soul. Even if all of that were true, and frankly, I doubt it for most of us, we are still not exempt from Paul's indictment here that we are swift to shed blood because it also includes sinful anger. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord has some very sobering words here. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he is taking the the wrong teaching of the Pharisees, how they have distorted the meaning of the Old Testament, and he's correcting it for his own disciples. In Matthew 5, verse 21, he begins to, to reinterpret, to properly interpret the Old Testament. He says in verse 21, you have heard, this is what the Pharisees have taught you, that the ancients were told... You shall not commit murder. That's true. That's the sixth commandment. And you've also been told that whoever commits murder shall be liable or guilty before the court. Now, that is true. That's not explicitly taught in the Old Testament. The Old Testament didn't link murder in the court system. However, the Old Testament law did set up a legal system, including local courts and the, San, and the idea of a, of a larger corporate body that eventually became the Sanhedrin. And so there is a court system that's spelled out in God's law. However, when the Pharisees tied the two together, they did a couple of things. One, they made the sixth commandment all about the act of murder and made themselves feel pretty good about themselves because most of them had never committed murder. And they made it about a legal issue with the court rather than an issue with God. And so Jesus sets out to correct that. Notice verse 22. That's what you've been told. But I say to you, Jesus said, let me tell you the divine intention behind the sixth commandment, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing or or stupid, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, that is scoundrel is the idea, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, what's going on here? Is there some difference between being angry in your heart with someone or in anger saying, you fool or you empty-headed person, you stupid, you idiot? Is there any difference between those in terms of guilt? No, that's not the idea at all. 
He's talking merely about anger and how it manifests itself. And he's talking about the moral guilt of anger related to the sixth commandment. Jesus is, he, he does have a progression here in the court system. Notice in verse 22, he first of all says, if you simply get angry in your heart with your brother, has that ever happened to you? You ever gotten angry? Jesus said, if the sixth commandment were interpreted properly, you could be taken before the local court in your city and convicted of violating the sixth commandment. Not only that, he says, if you're angry, and let's say your anger spills out in in words. You don't physically attack them, you just call them names in anger. Ever done that? Jesus says, if that happens... The conviction at the local court, that's the first stage, could be taken to the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and the conviction would stand. In other words, the Supreme Court of Israel, if they really interpreted God's law the way God intended, you could be put to death for one display of anger, name-calling somebody. But it gets worse. And, verse 22 goes on to say, whoever says you fool, again, anger in the heart expressed in words, shall be guilty enough to go into Gehenna. Wow. Jesus says not only could you be convicted before a human court of violating the sixth commandment, of being guilty for murder by being angry and by by yelling at somebody, by by using language that curses them or, or attacks them, But when you stand before God, if all that's ever happened is that you've gotten angry with someone in your heart and you've poured out words of anger, then God will find you guilty before his court of murder and he'll send you to hell. That's what Jesus says. Has that ever happened to you? You ever been angry in your heart at someone? You ever used words like stupid, idiot, in anger or worse? Jesus said just one time, and you could be declared guilty of murder in human courts, and you will be declared guilty of murder in God's court, and you will be sent to hell. Do you see why we need the gospel? Because there isn't one person in here. Who in here can say, I have never been angry in my heart with someone else? Who can say, I have never spoken in anger to someone else? If that's true of you, that alone will send you to hell on the day of judgment. That's what Jesus said. We don't have any hope but Christ. You see, Jesus says here that anger is the mental equivalent of murder. That means if you have been sinfully angry with someone else, by Jesus' standard, you have committed murder. Your feet have been swift to shed blood. In the same way that that a mature oak tree is within an acorn, the act of murder is within the thought of anger. You see why these verses are a universal indictment. Romans chapter 3, these verses are a universal indictment of all mankind without exception because there's no one who escapes this. We naturally destroy relationships because we have a predisposition to violent anger. There's a second reason for this indictment back in Romans 3. It's because we have a pattern of destroying relationships, a lifelong pattern of destroying relationships. Look at verse 16. Romans 3:16. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Now the word destruction refers to destructive actions. And misery refers to the misery that results from those actions. Misery and destruction are in their 
paths. That's a Hebrew expression that's similar to our English expression, in their trail or in their wake. You understand this. If you've ever seen a a tornado and the path of destruction that it leaves. Or I grew up on the Gulf Coast, and I remember on a couple of occasions driving for mile after mile and seeing the destruction of Hurricane Frederick and seeing just how it leveled everything in its path. That's the picture behind this expression. Paul's point, and ultimately Isaiah's point, is that if you will just get in the path and follow the path of a fallen human being in their trail or in their path, everywhere you look, you will find the debris of broken and shattered, devastated relationships. As one author put it, man damages and destroys everything he touches, leaving a trail of pain and suffering in his wake. Just follow a fallen human being and you will find marriages that have ended in bitter separation and in divorce. You will find many who have stayed together in marriage but who are absolutely miserable, who are at war with each other. They're living under the same roof as roommates or worse, enemies. You'll find families where there's no contact between parents and children or between siblings You'll find courts filled with civil lawsuits between former neighbors and partners and even family members. You'll find business partnerships destroyed. You'll find neighbors who refuse to speak with one another. You'll find friendships, long, intimate friendships that have been permanently severed. And you'll even find complete strangers who within five minutes of running into each other become bitter enemies and even give way to violence. Why is this pattern of broken and shattered relationships so pervasive in humanity? Paul tells us, let me show you. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Here we learn why this is so pervasive. It's because of what comes along with our fallenness. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh, that is, here's how fallenness acts. It's evident. And then he gives a a list. It's not a a comprehensive list. It's a representative list. Sexual sin. Fallenness acts in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And here are the relational sins that come along with our fallenness. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness. And we could add any sort of addiction to, to a substance, carousing, and things like these. This isn't a full list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you already, that those who practice as a habit of life such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if your life is described by one or more of these things, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul says. Now look at that list in verses 19 to 21. Those are the things that come with our fallenness, and those are the things that destroy relationships. On the other hand, look at the next verse, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces, are all the necessary qualities to ensure lasting relationships. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you can see why fallen man left to himself destroys every relationship he touches because this is how he acts. 
And every time he acts, he wreaks havoc on his relationships. So Galatians 5 insists that by nature, we were all born with a propensity for personal conflict. In James chapter 4, James says, why are there wars and quarrels? And why is there strife? And why is there fighting among you? It comes from your lusts. In other words, some self-centered desire, some self-centered expectation that I'm trying to protect and you're not letting me have. That's where conflict comes from. So this is why we have conflict. Because by nature, in our fallenness, we manifest the propensities and we pursue and practice the sins that create conflict and ultimately destroy relationships. So it should come as no surprise that Paul says destruction and misery are in their paths. Now, Paul identifies a third reason that lies behind the destruction of our relationships. It's that there's no perception of the path of peace. No perception of the path of peace. Verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. The path of peace is, is the path that is characterized by peace in our relationships, that leads to the end of conflict in our relationships, Paul says they haven't known it. They have no personal experience of walking on that path, and they don't even know where to find it. It's foreign to them. You understand this. I mean, even as we study this, this this passage is written on every page of human history. It's also written on every page of every person's individual story. Like a contagious disease, we carry conflict in our souls and that conflict oozes out into every relationship we touch. As one commentator put it, got it, he writes, no peace can exist either in the heart of such men or in their neighborhood. Contrast that with believers. Although we certainly still have the flesh with us, and we do have conflict, we do get involved in conflict, there has still been, as we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 5, a serious change in our nature. Before Christ, conflict characterized us. But in Christ, conflict becomes less common, and it's not an expression of who we really are. In fact, we want to see peace with God and peace with others. Because we have peace with God and peace with others through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, Paul makes this very point. Verse 14, I love this. He says, for Jesus himself is our peace. He's not talking about a feeling of peace. He's talking about objective end of the conflict. He is our peace. And notice he's our peace With God, look at verse 16, Christ in his death reconciled both Jews and Gentiles in one body, but he reconciled us to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity that was the law calling for our death. In other words, God in Christ made peace between our souls and God. The war is over between us and God because of what Jesus did at the cross. But notice, he also is our peace, verse 14, with other people. And here he's talking specifically about Jews and Gentiles who who spent history battling 
He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the, the enmity, the conflict which existed because of the law, which, which separated the Jews and the Gentiles from each other. And he reconciled us. You see the point? Jesus is our peace. He brings the end of conflict. The end of conflict between us and God and the end of conflict between us and others. He is our peace. Believers, listen. Romans 3, verses 15 to 17, is not how our relationship should be now. We have peace with God and peace with others through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Beatitudes, our Lord says, this is how we're described. We are peacemakers, Matthew 5, 9. That means we actively seek now to resolve conflict. Whereas before, we were content to let it lie. We were content to produce it. If you're in Christ, you're now a peacemaker. You want to see conflict resolved. Obviously, you want to see it resolved between God and sinners. And so you pray for their salvation. You share the gospel with them, as we saw this morning. We're ambassadors for Christ, pleading for sinners to be reconciled to God. We're peacemakers. But we're also pursuing peace with one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men. This is who we are. This is just an expression of our hearts now that we're in Christ. We even pursue peace between others who are in conflict with each other. We don't go meddling in others' affairs uninvited, but if they're a brother and sister in Christ, we have a good relationship with them. If, if we're invited to be a part of that solution, we try to bring cessation to the conflict. We're peacemakers because we have peace. Peace with God and peace with others. Now, let me just say that if you read Romans 3 and you are not yet willing to admit that this passage describes you, if you're sitting there saying, you know what, that may be somebody else, but that's not me, then let me just tell you, you are not a genuine Christian because you've never been brought to the place of the first beatitude. Blessed are the beggars in spirit. True Christians read Romans 3 and raise their hand and say, that's who I am. That's who I am. That's who I was. That's who I am apart from grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Let me put it plainly. If you do not accept this description of yourself apart from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no need to argue about it. You are just not a Christian. If you resent all of this, you are not a Christian. You are not yet convinced and convicted of sin, and you are not a believer in Christ, though you may have thought you were. If you in any way object to this, you are automatically putting yourself outside the kingdom of God and the Christian faith. On the other hand, if you've realized that your path The path of your life is strewn with the the debris and the carnage of destroyed relationships. and, And you desperately want that to change. You want peace between you and God and peace between you and others. You need to know that that is possible in what Paul calls the gospel of peace. What Jesus did at the cross made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. He paid the price of the sins of everyone who would ever believe so that we could be reconciled to God, our creator, so that God could accept us and forgive us in Christ. And it's only when we make peace with God that we can be at peace with others. Will you be reconciled to God? 
Are you willing to turn from your sin and to bow your knees to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sin and bow your knee to Him. And if you'll do so, through His death on the cross, He will reconcile you to God and He will reconcile you to the people in your life. He is our peace. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of his current series, Not Even One. Tom will have part nine for you on our next broadcast. Do join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.